G'day and welcome to episode 34 of The Other Side Australia for May the 12th to 18th, 2021. This is your weekly summary of the best news and views from an Aussie classical liberal perspective. I'm Damien Curry. In the show this week, our budget special. We'll be taking a look at the federal budget from a liberal perspective and asking, what does the budget do for making governments smaller? shrinking the bureaucracy and all its rules and regulations we have to live by and making us a more free people. So we won't be looking at it from the usual perspective, that government should be doing everything to take care of us all the time like a nanny state. I'll be joined by the respected Australian senior economist Gene Tunney to analyse Josh Frydenberg's budget. And if you don't even understand what the budget is or where money comes from, this will be a really helpful interview. It's a big show this week because I'm going to do one of my biggest takedowns of an ABC News segment that I've ever done. The ABC has truly lost the plot, in my humble opinion, and I'll show you why today. From around the World Wide Web, Donald Trump spoke to Candace Owens this week. We'll tell you all about that one. And Daisy Cousins, Australian YouTuber extraordinaire, explores why left-wing thinking can lead to more mental illness. We'll also explain the Andrew Lemming saga, the Liberal MP who's been a bit naughty. If you haven't been keeping across that one, we'll bring you up to date and explain why it's all such a big headache for poor old ScoMo. It's a very big show this one, so stay tuned. Just a full open and honest disclosure that this is a show that looks at the world from a classical liberal perspective, not a neo-Marxist woke perspective. We're the opposite of the ABC and most of the Australian mainstream media. And that's the whole idea, to give you the other side of the news by looking at it all through a different perspective. So people who have our worldview don't feel so isolated. And people who don't have our worldview, but are open-minded, at least get a different perspective and then can make up their own minds. It'd be nuts if you agreed with everything I said in every show, so I hope you don't do that, but I hope you enjoy the intellectual stimulation of looking at things from a different perspective. Most importantly, we do not pretend to be neutral and objective when we're not, like the ABC does. And we don't cost you a cent. You only have to stay and watch our content if you choose to, and it's absolutely free. So, you know, what could be more classical liberal, classically liberal than that? Speaking of liberals and liberalism, before we get into the federal budget, just a quick update on the latest news about freedom. We don't have much. And we won't be getting any more anytime soon. That's the word from the PM who's decided that Aussies want isolation and he plans to deliver it to them between now and the next federal election, at least. So do not expect to be seeing your loved ones overseas anytime soon. Do not expect to be doing business overseas anytime soon. And do not expect anyone to be coming here for a holiday anytime soon if your business or job happens to depend on that. We are Fortress Australia until mid-2022 at least. Dennis Shanahan does a great job of explaining it all in this past weekend's Australian. Scott Morrison made this very clear this week. He's seen the incumbent premiers win huge victories because of their tough lockdown approach. And he's decided that this will be a pandemic election because that is what Aussies want. And who can blame us? We haven't suffered economic pain because we borrowed from our kids' future to hand out free money now and keep everything ticking along. Unless you run a small business in certain sectors, you won't be suffering too much. 
As far as interventionist economic policy goes, they've done a pretty good job. And the millennials seem to be generally so lost in woke philosophy these days that they're not going to wake up to the fact that they'll be paying for all this until 2040, until about 2040. So there's no votes lost there. It's the right strategy to win an election, but it's a sad day for true classical liberals who like small government, who like hands-off economics and to have our own individual liberties and freedom. But a pandemic is the one thing where the left get to play all high and mighty and moralize about our responsibility as individuals to the collective. And it's very hard to argue back. As we've said on this show many times, SCOMO should have been leading the way on educating the public about the dangers of excessive isolation and lockdown last year. He should be selling the message of openness. But it's very hard to do when the media and three Labour premiers are terrifying everyone on a daily basis with tales of horror from abroad. So this may be the only way to hang on to power, and I'm guessing the Liberal Party research is showing them exactly that. Aussies love their isolation and are super scared of COVID-19. God help us when we get a really virulent coronavirus that's more deadly. Let's hope we never do. So for the next year or so, expect ongoing lockdowns, more support for Labor Premiers from your Politburo, the National Cabinet, and more of your friends and family telling you to just suck it up, you right-wing nutjob. This is a socialist country to its ideological core at the end of the day, and it seems no politician who wants to stay in government can ignore it, even one as conservative as ScoMo. And that, folks, is why we fight the culture and media wars, because until we change the culture, which means changing the media and the education landscape, the politics will never change. And on that note, it's my pleasure to help advance the educational mission by having as our budget analyst uh, this year, Mr. Gene Tunney from Adept Economics. Gene is also a former Australian Treasury official, uh, and he has direct budget experience. Gene, thank you very much for joining us on The Other Side Australia. It's a pleasure, Damien. Um, Gene, uh, we, we know that uh, classically liberal economists believe in sort of laissez-faire uh, which is French for, you know, uh, leave it alone or keep your hands off, small government, minimal intervention in the economy, no meddling. Um, but the Keynesian economics are, economists are all about government intervening and taxing and printing money and trying to steer the economy in a particular direction using monetary policy and budgetary policy. Um, a bit more of a socialist big government approach. How did Josh Frydenberg and ScoMo do on Tuesday night, in your view, in terms of delivering on liberalism as liberals? Well, uh, depends on how we define liberalism, Damien, but we've essentially abandoned a classical liberal approach in Australia. Uh, if you look at how we've managed the pandemic and now this very Keynesian budget where we're we're doing more than just protecting the economy during uh, this the crisis itself. We're using this Keynesian stimulus to go for growth, to drive down the unemployment rate below 5% to try to stimulate wages growth. Now, some governments were more inclined to classical liberalism, probably Robert Menzies, and, uh, and I think John Howard probably had a lot of uh, sympathies for classical liberalism. 
but you know, even Howard knew that he had to adopt a middle of the road position to win elections. Yeah, that's right. At the end of the day, it really does come down to that, doesn't it? And we are, this is an election budget and, and one probably that the Labor Party would have been proud to put together. Um, they could never have uh, brought forth a budget like this or the one before uh, Damien. So I was a manager in the budget policy division in 0809 in Canberra in treasury. And we had the second stimulus package of the Rudd government, the 41 or $42 billion nation building and jobs plan. That was the one that had the pink bats in it and the, the school halls, the Julia Gillard Memorial school halls. You may remember that the building mm. the education revolution. And the opposition leader at the time, you may remember Malcolm Turnbull opposed that and tried to, uh, to block the increase in the debt ceiling in the, in the parliament. And, uh, and our current prime minister was, uh, was one of the critics of, of those measures. So I think this is really a Nixon goes to China type of thing, where it's only really a liberal government that could enact a massive Keynesian uh, budget like this, a, a fiscal policy in a, experiment in a way. I think as Chris Kenny said on Sky News that last year's budget was about JobKeeper and this year's budget is about another kind of JobKeeper. It's uh, the government keeping its job. Is all the spending really necessary to get us through the crisis or are we seeing a lot of politically motivated uh, cash being splashed around here that we don't have? I think we're clearly seeing a lot of politically motivated cash, Damien. Now, look, a lot of this is, will be popular with the public and uh, there are many people in the community who want more money spent on, say, NDIS or aged care. So, yes, I mean, politics plays a big role. In terms of what's sensible from a macroeconomic point of view, I think you could argue that last year something needed to have been done, so JobKeeper in some form. If we look back, at, it appears that JobKeeper was, wasn't as well designed as it as it should have been, and there was money going to businesses that probably didn't need it. And Josh Frydenberg talks about saving 3 million jobs or something like that. But really, I mean, it's probably half that that was saved or, or even less because of, there were many people who got JobKeeper who didn't need it, really. Mm. Given the speed they had to get that out, though, I suppose it's forgivable initially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But, but um yeah, so looking at the winners in the budget, obviously um, aged care, it's very hard to argue with that one. We definitely need to improve aged care and probably uh, the home care focus is a good good idea. Uh, so 80,000 home care packages, uh, more funding to ensure the policing of aged care centres, which I think is a very good idea to, to for government to be doing its policing role and ensuring compliance and the rules are met, uh, the standards are met. Um, what, what are your general thoughts on the aged care spend? Well, it's potentially something we need to to spend money on. Uh, I'd like to look more at the details. I think, Damien, what we need to do is we need to to realise that over the medium to long term, we've got to get the budget into a better situation than it is now. What we've got because of all of this extra spending and and the tax promises that the government's made, we've got this gap between expenses and revenues. You may have seen it, some of the charts. Uh, John Keogh wrote a good piece on this this morning in the Financial Review. So we're going to have this 
permanent sort of budget deficit baked in and they're going to have to address that in the future so look it's there may be a lot of worthwhile expenditures that they're making but can we afford them in the long term that's the question and you've got to prioritize can i just go back to that point about the the fiscal policy and whether this fiscal stimulus is needed it could be that we're we're really just we're going to supercharge the economy we're going to overheat the economy there may have been a case for some targeted assistance to businesses still suffering because of the closure of international borders, such as some tourism businesses. Yeah, I've I've been worried about those, like ones in Cairns and Whit Sundays and, and Gold Coast to a lesser extent. But this this idea of going for growth, and given that we've had you know very strong vacancies, the the property market and the residential building is going crazy at the moment. Mm. Uh, there's all like business conditions and confidence according to the surveys are are very high like conditions are at records highs according to nab that that seems a bit implausible but those are the numbers uh it could be that we end up overheating the economy we we shoot up and then there's the eventual yeah crash from that uh could could end up being high inflation who knows it's very difficult to forecast so they're taking a big gamble there the the NDIS is one area that's going to get a bit of um, a bit of funding, more funding, uh, Gene. And again, another one that's a bit dear to my heart. This one, and uh, uh, they're looking at thirteen billion dollars more in funding. Um, and I heard somebody, one of the commentators, saying it may be end up more expensive than Medicare soon. Is that is that a oh, reality? That's correct. Uh, that's in the budget. So if you go to the, there's a statement on expenses, and they have the like what's ex- expected to be spent on these different areas over the Ford estimates. So, so by 2024-25, if you look at table 6.92 in the budget, National Disability Insurance Scheme, $33,320 million. So $33.3 billion. Brilliant. If you look at uh, the table on medical services and benefits, medical benefits, by 24, 25, 32,975 million. So 32 point, uh, well, $33 billion. So yep, that's correct. Okay, fair enough. But how do you define disability? And where do you draw the line? It's, it's not easy mm. because you, you can't, you, there are a whole range of conditions uh, that, uh, that, people will, that people have that, that could be counted as disability. Yeah. So it's a question of, of, of where you draw the line. That's a very hard thing to, to determine and to implement, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, one area where we're spending $3.5 billion will be targeting women's safety, economic security, health, and well-being. No equivalent spending for men, I notice. Men who we die younger, we're far more likely to be the victims of violence. We have three times the rate of suicide. Um, this one is just a, a fairly politically motivated move ahead of the election, no doubt, uh, given the the, the troubles that the government's been happening, having, or uh, can, we, can we justify another $3.5 billion going in this direction? They're, they're going to be responding to political considerations. There's no doubt about that. I mean, mm. that's the reality of it, right? And uh, Well, I'd be very happy if that $3.4 billion was going into creating safe houses and for domestic violence um, victims and, you know, was... was you know, spent on the on the ground in yes, the, in the yes. things that are really needed, uh, but I fear it might get sucked up into 
you know, bureaucratic spending around special programs for changing the way we all think. Um, <laughs> I do tend to worry about that a bit. Uh, okay. Um, we're talking about also uh, closing, keeping the borders closed. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's going to cut exports by 8% this year alone. Uh, and then it's going to be, there's going to be a bit of a rebound, they suggest, of, of 4% to 3% in the next two financial years. Is this something we can afford at the moment, 8% to cut exports? Yeah, it certainly concerns me uh, that, like that India policy, that ban was... That seemed very harsh, and uh, mm. and and not letting Australians travel. I know Andrew Cooper from Liberty Works. I don't know if you know Andrew or not, but he's yeah. challenging this the the border ban, the the ban on international travel of Australians, and and fair enough because uh, I think we, we do have to travel eventually, and uh, we may have to live with this virus. Uh, I'm not sure just how sustainable this strategy is over the long term of uh, keeping Australia as an island. And hopefully we do get everyone vaccinated. That's one of the other critical assumptions in the budget, isn't it? That we get people vaccinated by the end of the year and the vaccine does have the impact we expect. But gee, if we keep going on like this, we're just making ourselves miserable. I mean, and that's something you have to take into account not just the, any economic impacts. It's the That's fact right. that we are restricting people's liberties and there's a cost to that and it costs to our well-being. Yeah, it's not just the economic cost, it's the well-being cost. Um, so, Gene, this year's budget is going to see the government, as we said, spend $161 billion more than it has, so lots of borrowing. Um, and as I said, they're forecasting deficits in every budget for the next 10 years. Commonwealth debt, that means, is on its way towards the big $1 trillion mark. Uh, and it's expected to peak at $980 billion by 2024-25, which is not too far away. Um, just how concerned should we be about all of that? We hear a lot of talk about, you know, things like modern monetary theory and Keynesian economics. I mean, you don't really have to pay it back and it's all theoretical. Uh, it isn't, is it? The critical thing is to to keep it under control as a percentage of GDP. So you can, theoretically, you can run small deficits and and because your economy is growing, your debt to GDP re- remains stable and it's not going to be of great concern and your interest payments will be, will be relatively low as a share of the budget. Australia's of, debt to GDP isn't too bad by world well, Relative to yeah, US or UK right. or Japan, that's right. So that's one of the points. But the reason is, is because we've, we've had good fiscal policy in the past. So if you look right. at what, um, so the budget repair that or fiscal consolidation that was done by Hawke and Keating in, in the 80, late 80s, and then, I mean, more substantially, the the budget repair that was done by Peter Costello as treasurer and John Howard as prime minister with uh, that record run of budget surpluses and investing in the future fund. And that put us in a really good position so that uh, we have had all of this fiscal space as they, as the jargon is to be able to expand, to respond. But the the thing is, I mean, it's so hard for governments to do that fiscal repair and I mean, debt, debt accumulates, it builds up. So I think what we're, so at the moment we'll say, oh well, we're only a third of the the U.S. or whatever it is, but that will set a new 
base from which we build on for yeah. the future. Yes. And the other big of- number is the ratio of our government spending to our GDP. I mean, just how yeah, much yeah. how much of our GDP we're spending every year, or how big our government is, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's permanent. That We've seen this permanent increase in that. And we yeah. see this gap between expenses and revenues, which we will have to address over the long term. So the medium term projections in the budget out to into the early part of next decade, we're not getting back into surplus if I if I'm remembering those correctly. So yeah, there's no real plan to get that budget. No, they're talking about 10 years. The dirty secret of public finance mm. is that governments don't really have to repay the debt. What they do is they re fund or they refinance the debt so governments will borrow for say there's a 10-year bond and they'll sell a bunch of 10-year bonds and when they mature in 10 years time what they'll do is they'll just pay back the principal on those bonds that pay back the bondholders with new borrowings they'll sell new bonds and and that's they just keep rolling it over the problem comes if if you're a say an emerging economy that has to borrow in international currency, like you, no one will lend to you in your own currency. So you're having to borrow in US dollars and then your debt to GDP is looking is looking unsustainable and then the markets go, oh, we don't want to lend to you anymore and or we'll only lend to you at very high interest rates and that can cause huge problems. But we're not in that position at the moment. We borrow in Australian dollars and uh, international, you know, the markets are very happy to lend to us at the moment. Yeah, so we've just got to stay that way, I guess. Well, hopefully. I mean, you you just you just don't know, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I remember like you think back to the '80s, and we had concerns over the the credit rating, and even I think in the '90s we were having to borrow some funds in foreign currency, not all of it, but but certainly some. Uh, it's yeah, there's there's no guarantees that the favourable circumstances that were faced. Or the or the favourable attitude that international markets have had towards Australia will continue in the future. The, mm. it, so long as we're selling a lot of iron ore and they've got record high iron ore price, maybe. But uh, and of course, all that aside, happens. you know that that concept of just continually borrowing to to you know refinance, or it's essentially the equivalent of refinancing if you're just issuing more bonds to pay off other bonds, I guess. Um, but that constant refinancing. It doesn't do anything about the fundamental value, right? So the fundamental value and the fundamental value of the debt is still being pushed out to the future. You would have to repay it in the very long run. That That's correct. But the, the burden of the debt is the interest bill, okay, Damien? So I mean, yeah. we can talk about how it it's a transfer from, from future to current generations. Now, uh, that's that's one way of looking at it. Because I mean, future generations will have to, they will have to pay the, the interest bill and, and they will inherit the debt uh, in the future. So that, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But the burden of the debt is really that interest bill and, and we're going to be paying that too. <laughs> okay. So it's yeah. not just about yeah. future generations, it's about yeah. us. And it's going to, so the interest bill is now $20 billion or so. So what if interest rates increase and, and say they, they double and then over the sort of, as all of the bonds 
uh, get refinanced, you could end up with an interest bill of 40 billion or so, like a much higher interest bill. And so that's an additional 20 billion you have to find from your current budget, okay? If you want to keep the, the budget balance constant. And that's where governments get into trouble or they're forced to make hard choices. Yeah, it's one thing to, it's a very easy question to answer, where should we spend more? But it's a very hard question to answer, where should we cut spending? Gene, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. It's been great, uh, been great talking to you. And I'd love to have you back on the show sometime so we can talk more broadly about things like modern monetary theory and some of the direction that economies seem to be moving in these days, even in the, the liberal West. Definitely, yes. Thanks, Damien. Have you noticed, Matt Wong, that when you watch the news, nobody smiles anymore? First of all, you use my last name out of me, but second of all, you're supposed to be serious. It's news. Is it news? Is it news? Watch The People's Project, 7.30pm Fridays on Discernible, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. This week, federal Labor frontbencher Penny Wong showed up at a demonstration in the Brisbane Bayside electorate of Bowman to call for the sacking of the sitting Liberal National Party member there, Andrew Lemming. Lemming has taken a month of medical leave after a series of allegations levelled against him by women claiming harassment. Two female constituents, including the wife of a local councillor, accused him of aggressive behaviour online. I don't want to be attacked anymore. Dr Lamming apologised to both women and announced he would leave politics at the next election. And I express my regret and deep apologies for the hurt and the distress that that communication may have caused. During his month of leave, he said he'd been diagnosed with ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And this is why some of his behaviour has been a bit unusual. As a medically trained person, I really genuinely had no idea that, hyper, uh, that, that ADHD and hyperactivity was an adult condition. I just thought it was something in the schoolyard. Now, as you know, I'm passionate about respecting due process and the rule of law. Otherwise, anyone could accumulate a bunch of false allegations against someone they don't like, and every single one of us, man and woman alike, would lose one of our fundamental rights under our great Australian system of government and law. The right to have your day in court, and to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And the ABC was up to its old trick, speaking to women who just had casual encounters with Lemming that made them feel uncomfortable, just to beef up the narrative against him. I'll have a lot more on that in a moment. Lemming is due back in Parliament this week after his little break, and as of our time of recording, he still hasn't been sacked. But before he went off on break, ScoMo forced him to apologise to two women and got him to do a short online empathy course. Now, Lemming is going to be finishing up at the next election. If he's sacked before then, that would bring the government's numbers in the House of Representatives down from 76 to just 75 out of 151. 76 is a majority government. 75 is a minority government if there's 151 seats all up. Defence Minister Peter Dutton defended Lemming this week, saying he has a good record in serving the people of Brisbane's Bayside suburbs and that he's made mistakes and has owned up to them. But other Liberal Party colleagues are not so supportive. What he's been doing is completely outrageous. I'm really appalled by Andrew's conduct. Absolutely unacceptable. Lemming has top-notch qualifications, so all this is a bit of a tragedy. He's a doctor with a medical degree from the University of Queensland. He's a specialist in two disciplines. He's an ophthalmologist and an OBGYN. 
He's got a master's in public administration from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And he has two other master's degrees. And he's a bit of a humanitarian to boot. He spent three months in Afghanistan clearing landmines with the British charity Halo Trust and doing basic war surgery with the International Council of the Red Cross in Kabul. So it seems he's a good person, but he's a good person with a bit of an unacceptable problem. The allegation that really sealed the deal for me is that he's also been accused of taking a photograph of a woman at her workplace without her consent as she bent over with her underwear visible. Police investigated the matter, but no action was taken. Dr. Lemming denied any inappropriate behavior, saying the woman was trying to stack a fridge with cans and had too many cans to fit in the fridge, and he thought he'd look like a bit of an impossible task, and so he took a photo for that reason. In any case, over 100 people showed up at a rally in the Brisbane Bayside suburb of Cleveland this weekend, calling for Lemming to be immediately sacked, and as I said, Senator Penny Wong was there. What we have to do is to continue to speak out, to back women who show courage in coming forward. And we also have to say to our leaders, these are the standards we expect. And the standard we expect from Scott Morrison is this bloke should no longer be in the parliament. In the parliament. And you should not be accepting his vote. And every day you do in the parliament says something about you, Scott Morrison. Ah, yes. It's all Scott Morrison's fault. ScoMo needs this now like a hole in the head. The LNP has not endorsed Lemming for the next election. He is out. And a party statement said Dr. Lemming's behaviour has not met the standards required of LNP members. If ScoMo sacks Lemming now, it'll leave the government, as I said, with a minority in Parliament. But there are enough Conservatives on the crossbench for that to probably not be too much of an issue, just a bit annoying. A sacking would spark a by-election... But Bowman is a pretty safe Liberal seat, so it would very likely be retained. And filling it with some new blood might actually be a very good idea for the LNP, and it would put a hole in the false narrative being driven by Labor and left-wing media that ScoMo somehow doesn't care about women's safety. By the way, this is a woman named Nicole Gray, proudly standing with her kids at the protest and posing for a Courier Mail photograph. I don't know about you, but it really bugs me when parents use their kids at political protests about stuff kids shouldn't even have to be worrying about. Okay, so Andrew Lemming has done some really weird stuff that justifies him being removed from the parliament, and I am certainly not going to defend his behaviour. But I will criticise the ABC, as it continues to work as if it's the billion-dollar taxpayer-funded PR agency of the Labor Party charged with ensuring all their preferred narratives get promoted. Let's take a closer look at the story on the 7.30 report about Lamming. In it, the reporter re-ran the early allegations of aggressive online behaviour that got Lemming in hot water originally and that he apologised for. That's fair enough. But then the story went on in a style those of us who've worked in TV know to be a massive beat-up. They interviewed a woman by the name of Gemma Carey, a professor at the University of New South Wales who met Lamming on an aeroplane. Let's listen to her tale and see how evil Andrew Lamming was to her and why our ABC saw fit to run her story. Take it away. Professor Gemma Carey met Andrew Lamming on a flight from Canberra to Sydney in March 2015. I was sitting by the window, so I was 
wedged in by him. He had the ILC. Okay, so right from the start, we see the narrative being crafted and the language being manipulated. She says, I was wedged in by him. He had the aisle seat and she had the window seat. If they were in economy class, that would mean there'd most likely have been an empty seat between them. If they were in business class, there's plenty of room not to feel wedged in. But never let the facts get in the way of a good hatchet job, ABC, right? Carry on. He began by sort of saying, you know, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a politician. I was, you would have seen me in the news this week. He asked me a lot of questions and but it was a very chaotic exchange where I felt like I was being spoken at by uh, Andrew Lamming. I wasn't really speaking to him. Okay so now we have him making small talk and big noting himself. Normal male peacock behavior in most species but a serious crime according to modern Australian university professors. And he was speaking at me not to me of course, that is never a subjective perception, but I'm sure her allegations get a lot worse, right? I mean, otherwise, why would the ABC run an interview about two people meeting on a plane and a guy being a bit, you know, obnoxious? Professor Carey said Dr. Lamming made comments about her appearance. Things like, are you from Canberra? You don't look like you're from Canberra. Uh, you look too cosmopolitan. He said things like, you have such a lovely figure in that outfit. I was deeply uncomfortable. Um, I felt like I was trapped next to someone who was just being completely inappropriate, irrespective of their job. He commented on her appearance. He complimented her appearance. The way do you respond to that if you're not interested in someone is you say, thank you, you're very kind. Being approached by someone who's a bit flirty is uncomfortable, unless, of course, the attraction is reciprocated, but nobody knows that beforehand, right? So you have to manage it. We all do. Yes, women do more than men, I suppose, but that's the way it's been for tens of thousands of years. And until now, in this country, it hasn't really been considered a really offensive thing or a crime or anything. Professor Carey says Dr Lamming repeatedly asked her to join him for drinks at a function in Sydney. Repeatedly! He repeatedly invited this woman out for drinks. How dare he? And right after he repeatedly complimented her. This is truly outrageous now. He said, I'm going out to an art gallery after this. You should come with me. Um, we'll have lots of cocktails. It'll be great. And I sort of, you know, politely said, I, I, I won't be doing that. He didn't stop asking, <laughs> even when I said that. So he wasn't deterred? No, not at all. Not at all. He was not deterred by my trying to not engage with him. He was not deterred by my body language in trying to shift away from him. He was not deterred when I said, I'm not going to come out. Thank you for the invitation, but I'm not interested. Okay, so he's a confident and persistent bloke. He's got more guts than I ever had when I was single, and he's married. Okay, so now we're getting into some substance at least. Now, maybe he is being a bit too pushy and he's stepping into the creepy realm. I mean, maybe. We don't actually know for sure since we only have Professor Gemma's side of the story. Now, I spent a lot of the past 20 years in aeroplanes for business travel all over Asia and occasionally you do get seated next to someone who's a little bit annoying. You can discreetly ask the cabin crew to move you. I've done it. It works. And it especially works if you're a young woman who claims to be being harassed by another passenger who's a man. But it seems Gemma didn't bother to do that. So maybe her story about Lemming is a little politically motivated. Or maybe she did ask the flight attendant. I mean, of 
course, the ABC would have asked both those questions next, right? No. Professor Carey said they got off the flight in Sydney and she went to the baggage carousel. I was really relieved and I went and I collected my bag. <sighs> she was relieved. I mean, it must have been just horrifying, all those unsolicited compliments and invitations. I mean, what an ordeal for a 21st century university professor. I mean, life off campus just isn't safe, is it? Hey, <laughs> But it gets worse. And then I was exiting in Sydney airport to get a taxi. And as I approached the doors, he was standing there again. Only this time he had his driver with him, who was very tall, <laughs> an imposing figure, um, completely silent. And Andrew Lemming again uh, started saying, come out, we're going to an art gallery, come on, come out. And I, and I said, no, no, um, I'm not interested and, and I can't. She says Dr Lamming insisted she accept a lift to her hotel. Again, I declined numerous times. Okay, now, if her story is true and the way she's telling it is to be believed, Lamming really is getting to the point where if I was at a bar, I'd go up to him and say, mate, I think this lady's made it very clear she doesn't want to hang out with you, you're not reading the signs, might be time to let it go, eh? But this wasn't a bar, so Professor Carey doesn't need any white knights butting in. All she had to do as a strong, mature adult female of high public standing was walk away and go straight to the taxi queue, which is obviously what she did, right? Wrong. He is remarkably persistent, and I think as probably many women have experienced, you get to a point where you just think, you know what, it'll just be easier. I'll just get this lift against my better judgment. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll accept a lift to where I'm staying, but I'm not coming out. Okay, so let's just recap, shall we? This professor felt like she was trapped, wedged in the window seat, being harassed by this persistent, creepy man for a whole flight. She is so relieved when she got off the plane to have this horrendous ordeal of male intrusion, repeated unsolicited unwanted compliments, repeated unwanted invitations to a cocktail art gallery event, him speaking at her, not to her, respectfully. So happy to be away from that situation that she accepted a lift to her to hotel with him. She voluntarily got into the back seat of a car with him for another 45 minutes of, I don't know, feeling wedged. How is this even slightly a credible story, ABC? How could you run this? Unless, unless something else really bad happened in the car. Let's find out. So how did it end? I think when it became clear that I was definitely not going to go, uh, he became quite disinterested, so then he started just playing on his phone and he was text messaging. Right, but that's what you wanted all along, right? You wanted him to leave you alone, but now you're presenting that as somehow a bad thing. He was rude, he just became disinterested and started playing on his phone. How dare he not continue to compliment really relentlessly the bastard? At the hotel, it was the driver got out, opened the door for me, got me my luggage, lamming, I don't think he even said goodbye. He didn't even say goodbye. What a bastard. He completely stopped throwing unwanted compliments and invitations at her. He stopped making her feel creeped out and uncomfortable. And the driver came around and opened the door for you, Gemma, and helped you with your bags. Well, that must have been scary because the driver was tall, as you mentioned earlier. Were you okay? 
I mean, of course, you're a highly intelligent, mega qualified university professor in social sciences. I mean, you're a strong, capable woman and you'd be able to cope with the awful life trauma of being given a lift to your hotel and being complimented and asked out by a man repeatedly. Would you? I mean, it's not like you'd need to call your mum or anything. I actually called my mum and said, this really strange thing has happened um, and told her the story. And, um, you know, I, I really just needed to debrief with someone because it all felt so strange and I did feel very uncomfortable. Well, I, I'm so glad you had the opportunity to debrief with someone and that you're okay. We feel your pain and suffering, Gemma. We stand as your ally in this awful, awful time when men sometimes go too far with the compliments and kind invitations to art gallery cocktail party events and then don't say goodbye nicely after being used for a free taxi ride and rejected again. You stay safe out there, sister. But seriously, folks, this really is no joke. That was the flagship current affairs program on your national broadcaster running a complete nothing burger of a story at your expense with the only purpose being to perpetuate a false narrative. The false narrative that happens to be the core of the Labor Party strategy to take down this government. That not many pollies on both sides of the house have acted inappropriately and can be a bit sleazy and need to lift their game, but that it's all just happening on one side and Scott Morrison is to blame. Bob Hawke used to answer the door of his hotel room to young female reporters dressed in nothing but a towel. His womanizing nature was legendary. And no, it's not appropriate, and it was of another era. But this is not news, ABC. This is the ABC behaving as a propaganda production machine for the Labor Party. But let's give the ALP lobbies the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume they're not just parroting the lines from the ALP, but that like me, their politics just lines up more with one political ideology than another, and so they tend to be biased towards that ideology and that party. Well, that's fine if you're a two-bit news commentary podcaster that nobody has to fund or watch if they don't want to. But it's absolutely not fine if you're the national broadcaster funded by all Australians for you to push one ideology onto the nation because of your massive cultural shaping power. Why a conservative government hasn't pulled the plug on you completely just baffles me. The Liberal National Party are too nice and play too fair sometimes. They're masochists. They apparently like to fight elections by giving their political opponents a billion dollars to run propaganda against them. When will they wake up to the fact that not reforming the ABC will not win them any supporters on the centre-left? That the time to take the pain is now. That what will win or lose the next election will be cultural issues, just as much as economic or pandemic issues. This garbage would never have made it onto the ABC 10 years ago. The interview would have been binned as the non-story it is. But nope, not in the neo-Marxist woke world in which we now live. Because it fits Marxism's oversimplistic oppressed oppressor worldview, where everyone's a victim. And the only way out is to appoint a government full of Marxists to control everyone's behaviour, thinking, sexuality, interactions. What could possibly go wrong with that solution? And it fits modern third-wave feminism's narrative and the ultimate goal of radical feminists to demonize all men and reframe all flirting as harassment and all male sexual behavior as rape. Men of Australia, mothers of sons and good sane women everywhere, we must stop this garbage from now on and call it out. And if you're a feminist, 
Do it for the women who actually do suffer real sexual violence, rape and harassment at the hands of creeps. Because nothing sets back the true cause of protecting women's and girls, women and girls like this sort of extreme radical feminist garbage. U.S. political commentator and talk show host Candace Owens had President Trump on her new show on the Daily Wire platform this week. She asked the former president about the differences between how the mainstream media portrayed him back when he was president and how they portray Joe Biden now that he is. The Democrats are protected. When you see the uh, speech that Biden made the other day, and then they get on and they say, oh, that reminded me of FDR. You know, they know it's a lie. It was it was a terrible speech and terrible, just the delivery, everything. And they know that. But the fake news media likes to try and make it like it was a wonderful speech, a great speech. Wasn't it wonderful? And they must go back into the back room after the show and just laugh at each other and uh, high five each other because it's it's disgraceful. How has it impacted, you know, you're, you're a fighter, you're courageous, I'm courageous. How has it impacted your family to be thrust into the spotlight in this way? Especially, I think, I always have my heart out for, for Melania. I mean, this beautiful woman yeah. should be on the cover of every magazine, every first lady that came before her celebrated, we love you, we love you. And they were unrelenting in their nasty coverage towards her. You also have a young yeah. son. How do, how do they deal with this? Well, they handle it really well. And uh, Melania, uh, really, it's amazing. She's very confident. She's a confident person, a good person. And the people love her. You know, when I make speeches, there's signs all over. We love our first lady. We love our first lady. So many signs like that. The people get it. They love her. But the press is just horrible. Uh, I remember she did, first time I really saw it, she did a beautiful Christmas display at the White House. It worked very, very hard. And every, it was so beautiful. Everybody said, and they just ravaged it. They thought it was so terrible. And I think the hypocrisy is astounding. And you are correct that Americans are awake to it. I mean, in speaking about your family, I mean, the coverage of even Ivanka and Don Jr., I, you know, I love them both, compared to Hunter Biden. Right. And, and we, we couldn't find oh, a story yeah. on Hunter yeah. Biden. They, they, they suppressed that story on Hunter Biden. And the media is pretending that there isn't a double standard and that they just censored that story off of the Internet because they weren't yet sure uh, that it was true. And now we know, of course, that it is true. And Biden's first 100 days not giving a press conference. Could you imagine if that was you mm -hmm. uh, and you had not given a press no, conference? No, it would have been. It would have been much different. So I think cancel culture really started in its biggest form when the stuff started coming out about Hunter. And all of a sudden, it was just literally canceled. You know what they did to the New York Post, which actually is a really good paper, oldest paper in the country, I guess, and uh, a very good paper. And what they did to the New York Post and what they did, they just that was the first real incredible sign of cancel culture. Was there any person that really let you down on the way out? That if you could go back and say, man, I maybe had some snakes in my own garden and I was too loyal to see it. Well, there were many. I mean, look, you had many, and, and others do, too. 
Uh, first of all, if they're writing a book, they get more money if they say negative than if they say positive. And uh, not only money, they probably don't even get a book on the other way. But we've had some great books written, very positive books, too, because nobody's done what we've done. Just the vaccine alone, people, even the enemy calls it a modern day miracle. And without me, you wouldn't have had a vaccine. Wouldn't have been here for three to five years and probably wouldn't have happened at all. We did the vaccine and even the enemy admits that and we did a great job. It wouldn't have been here for many years. Did something else, bought billions of dollars of it before we knew it worked. Uh, now, we had a pretty good idea. Otherwise, it would have been foolhardy. But, you know, we bought billions and billions of dollars of vaccine. You wouldn't be getting a shot until September, October of this year. And, uh, by you know, I, I made a bet, and it was a bet, maybe the greatest bet ever made, in a sense, because we have people all over the world getting the vaccine right now. Trump went on to say that the handling of the distribution of the vaccine by the Biden administration has been terrible, especially the negative signal that was sent by the pause on the distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. He says there were only six adverse reactions out of 8 million vaccinations, but the pause has caused people to lose faith in the whole program. Candace also asked Trump about censorship of him by big tech. What they've done is so bad. And then they wonder why people don't want to take it. Well, and I, so they've done a terrible job of distribution. Right. And I think, well, there's also another element of it. And I think, uh, you know, speaking to a lot of people that are very hesitant to get this vaccine, I think also uh, people don't like the amount of censorship that has come with COVID-19 and the pandemic. They don't like that people are not allowed to have a dialogue or say uh, anything that goes against Dr. Fauci. And I think that that's actually creating distrust. They think that censorship is making people only believe, you know, we're conquering misinformation. But in reality, not allowing the free flow of ideas and letting people to talk about this thing might be a reason that people are hesitant uh, to believe what is coming out of the government at this moment. The point Candace is making there is no small one. It's common for socialist and totalitarian governments to use censorship as a means to control the narrative. But censorship breeds distrust and it ultimately backfires. Nobody in Russia or China believes anything their governments tell them or that they read in most newspapers. Our culture and societies in the West were built on the free exchange of ideas with the belief that getting things out of the open will ultimately lead to debate, rigorous debate, conflict, and the truth winning out in the end. When you were a sitting president of the United States, you get censored off of the internet, which is just unbelievable that a sitting president of the United States could ever be mm -hmm. censored off of the internet for a harmless tweet. And so let me ask you a question. I want you to think about the answer. Do you believe that in this moment, America is still a free country? Well, I never thought, I mean, for a long time, for really a long time, I never thought we had a free press. And, you know, you need a free press to be a really free country. You, you look at what's going on where they don't talk about things they should be talking, but they'll go after Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. uh, they won't go after other things, other people, and without mentioning names like Hunter, uh, <laughs> but uh, they don't go after. I could mention I could mention 20, 20 things. They don't they don't want to talk about it. It's a shame. This John Kerry situation with Iran was disgraceful. And you talk about the Logan Act. Why didn't somebody go after that? By the time we found out about it, I mean you should because he's. You know, the way I view it, he was uh, telling Iran not to do things and during our administration. And we could have made we were getting we we're going to make a great deal with Iran. We were going to make a great deal. China is now 
running the operation. You look at China, what they're doing. They never, they never spoke to me that way. Russia never spoke to us about what they do when they surround Ukraine. They never did that during my watch. They just don't have respect for our country anymore. These guys, look at what's going on in North Korea. I had a great relationship with Kim Jong Un. They don't, they don't respect our leadership. They don't respect our country anymore. This happened over a period of a few months. Right. It's terrible. It is terrible, and it impacts Australia a lot. Candace Owens finished the interview by asking President Trump if he planned to run again in 2024. The answer is I'm absolutely enthused. I look forward to doing an announcement at the right time. Uh, as you know, it's very early, but I think people are going to be very, very happy uh, when I make a certain announcement. And, you know, for uh, campaign finance reasons, you really can't do it too early because it becomes a whole different thing. Otherwise, I'd give you an answer That's that correct. I think you'd be very happy with. But uh, so we are looking at that very, very seriously. And uh, all I say is stay tuned. And that's U.S. commentator and talk show host Candace Owens there interviewing Donald Trump on the Daily Wire platform this week. You know where to find the link to the full interview. Well, we're almost out of time because of the budget. It's been a long show, but I want to share with you some of conservative Australian commentator Daisy Cousins' latest video. I've been a fan for ages, and Daisy is very close to reaching 200,000 YouTube, YouTube subscribers. So if you haven't subscribed to her channel, please do so. And please subscribe to ours, of course. We're still trying to get to 2,000. Anyway, this week, Daisy tackles the quite serious question, are liberals, in the American sense of the word, meaning left-wing thinkers, more likely to suffer mental illness than their conservative friends. Anyway, this study examined political ideology, gender and race and found that liberals generally were more likely to be diagnosed with a, with a mental health issue than conservatives, but on top of that pile were white liberals and of male and female white liberals, female white liberals came out as the group most likely to have been mentally ill at some point, just under 13% more than their male counterparts. Now. The question here is, are mentally ill people more likely to be drawn to leftist ideology or does leftist ideology cause mental illness? Honestly, I'm inclined to think it's the latter, as is Dr. Lyle Rosater, a board-certified psychiatrist who's treated mental disorders for over 30 years. He asserts that white liberalism thrives on supposedly championing workers, minorities, the little guy, women and the unemployed who they continuously see as wronged, cheated, oppressed, disenfranchised, exploited and victimized with little to no agency of their own, which of course tends to translate into infantilizing and patronizing those groups, you know, bigotry of low expectations and all that. Anyway, Dr. Rosetter continues that in the minds of leftists, those responsible for that oppression of the little guy are poverty, disease, war, ignorance, unemployment, racial prejudice, ethnic and gender discrimination, modern technology, capitalism, globalization and imperialism. In the radical liberal mind, this suffering is inflicted on the innocent by various predators and persecutors. Big business, big corporations, greedy capitalists, US imperialists, the oppressors, the rich, the wealthy, the powerful, and the selfish. Add to that the inherent guilt that white leftists are forced to feel that they and their white privilege are directly responsible for that suffering, and indeed, the suffering of millions of people over thousands of years at the hands of the white race, and add to that the fact that white liberal women are taught that they will never achieve what men can achieve because they will always face gender discrimination that they can't control, well, 
you have a recipe for anxiety, depression, and goodness knows what else. Conservative women, on the other hand, know that none of that is true. You know, they know that they are not responsible for the collective suffering of millions of people over thousands of years, and they also know that they have every opportunity that men do, and it is totally within their control to make life what they want to make of it, rather than being subject to hostile societal forces over which they have no control. So. The moral of the story here is that women should really stay away from leftism. It is a cocktail of pointless unhappiness. You know, come over to the dark side with me and a whole lot of other fun ladies, some of which I just mentioned. You will have a much nicer time here. Trust me. That's Aussie YouTube legend Daisy Cousins pulling no punches as usual. There, you know where to find the link to the full video as always. Well, it's been a huge show this week. So to finish off. Some laughs from the brilliant actor and comedian Jimmy Rees, who's just posted the latest episode in his series, Meanwhile in Australia, on YouTube, in which New South Wales discovers that she has one case of COVID. Does anyone smell that? It's just probably your own ego. Shut up, Victoria! Oh, yeah! Oh, what are you doing now? I'm at the Ivy Queensland. What's that? You wouldn't know Queensland. It's for wankers! Shut up, Victoria! But seriously, can you smell that? I don't need a barbecue anyway. <coughs> what was that? Hello? I'm still here, you know! Shut up, Tasmania, I'm on the phone! What is it? Put the popcorn in the microwave! What do you mean you don't know where it's from? Oh, I knew I could smell something! Alright, everyone, we've got one case of Corona! Shut up, Western Australia! Can we talk about the vaccine? Your assholes talking again, New South Wales! <laughs> Just relax for one second. I've got some news. You're getting dancing lessons? We've got one case. Mm. And? Yes? And? Well? We're waiting! What? And we don't know where it's from. Ooh, that's bad. Oh! Shut! Seriously, wow. The? Sucks to be you. And I've got some advice for you all, you alarmist losers. You need to take a leaf out of my book. What's that called? The mystery case and me? <laughs> or maybe it takes one to tango <laughs> and one to shut the border. Oh, God, just relax, all right? We've got it under control. We're going to wear masks, minimise people in other people's homes, and there'll be no singing and no dancing. Thank God for that. It's business as usual here in New South Wales. Well, if you need some... I need your help, WA. So what are you all gonna do, hey? Business as usual, you say. Well, we're gonna... Okay. Can anyone hear me? Oh, fine. We don't really want to go to Wanker Town anyway. Shut them. Oh, but I've got the t-shirt. Oh, shut them. Nothing? Good. Well, this is actually great. This is this is like a step forward. Well, well done, everyone. Business as usual. I like this. Huh. Hello, New Zealand. Just letting you know we've shut the border to you, New South Wales. What, New Zealand? What? Wait, that's my what? What? That's Jimmy Rees. We've put the link to Jimmy's full sketch in the program notes. Please do check it out and support him. That's it for the show this week. We do really need you to tell your friends about the show if you like it and help us get the word out. So please tell your friends and share, share, share on all your social media channels too. Uh, remember, we upload on Wednesday nights on Discernible, a bit later on the Good Source platform. So until next week, do stay free and don't let the woke kids get you down. Mm -hmm.